One of the things that we can be grateful for is that it's not as warm in here as it was last Wednesday and Thursday. Um, I want to begin by thanking Mike uh, for speaking last Sunday and uh, for sharing from Scripture. Also, as my wife reminded me of, for bailing me out, last Sunday was Mother's Day, which I apparently failed to mention at any point in the service. Uh, but Mike was on, on the spot, and I thank him for that. We finished our study of First Timothy, in which we gleaned principles for how to keep the faith alive in this generation and how to pass the faith on to the next generation. In the next to the last verse of First Timothy, Paul writes, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. And we saw that this was the fourth and final charge in 1 Timothy, in which Paul tells Timothy, this is what you need to do. The metaphor, as we saw, is taken from everyday life, in which someone gives to another person something of great value, and they entrust it into that person's care for safekeeping. It's usually done with something that is a treasured possession. Here, I'm giving this, I'm entrusting you, uh, trusting this, to you. Then the letter closes with grace be with you. And we don't see this in all English translations. Uh, some do. But the you there is plural. That is grace be with you all. And here at the end of the letter we find what we've suspected all along. That although the letter is addressed to Timothy, it is assumed that others are reading the letter. And so the final, the final statement, uh, grace be to you all. Now we turn to Second Timothy, and we find a letter that is much more personal, and I would argue much more individual. This is Paul writing to Timothy man-to-man. This is the apostle writing to his associate. However, there is not the disconnect we might imagine between First and Second Timothy, because as I said at in the next to the last verse, he gives him this final charge. Well, that, in a sense, is a jumping off point for what the rest or what Second Timothy will be all about. The second letter con- uh, contains a series of four charges, if you wish, at least four, that are in line with that last one that we saw in First Timothy. The second letter opens, I think we begin to see that it's much more personal than the first one. Perhaps not in the first two verses. You might remember how uh, Paul began 1 Timothy. This is who is writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Then this is who it is addressed to, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then basically, hello, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not to say that there's nothing of value in these two verses, that there's no information to be gleaned, no benefit from this opening. But it really stands in stark contrast with other, with Paul's other letters in which he's much more effusive and his, oftentimes his greetings will take not two verses, but will take six or eight or ten verses. Um, the second letter begins in a very similar way But as the book unfolds, we find something that is deeply personal, uh, much more personal than what we saw in the first one. There's something else. As far as we can tell, this was Paul's last letter, at least in terms of what we find in the New Testament. It is in this letter that we hear these words. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It seems that Paul is near the end of his life. Does Paul know that this is his last letter? Probably not. And in fact, it may not have been. Uh, because, if again, near the end of the letter, he says, Do your best to come quickly, or come to me quickly. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. So it is not Paul saying this is a great valedict- you know, valedictory letter. I'm saying goodbye. Um, but there is some sense in which Paul is nearing the end of his life and his ministry. And he writes to a man who is very dear to him. I think what we find in this letter are instructions for how Timothy is to continue once Paul is gone. Listen and follow along as I read today. We'll read or look at the first 12 verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I want to look at who wrote this letter and to whom is the letter written. We've already seen that, in fact, it is Paul who writes this letter. And the first two verses are very similar to what we find in his first letter to Timothy. But the words are so familiar that, in fact, we might miss something, I think, that is important. First of all, the fact that Paul could claim to be an apostle was significant. Paul was not one of the twelve. Unlike the twelve who were chosen by Jesus during his earthly ministry, to whom Jesus gave the title apostle, who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry, which gave them, by the way, unmatched opportunities to hear his words, to see his works, and to be in a position to bear witness to him all they had seen and all that they had heard. And Jesus had, in fact, promised his spirit to the twelve. Paul was not one of those twelve. Yet Paul claimed that he was an apostle. 
He had, in fact, seen the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had the qualifications that the other apostles had. He was appointed, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That he was commissioned to be an apostle is something that Paul could never forget. In part because he did not choose to be an apostle. And I think this is something that we may, we understand it, but may sort of gloss over it. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. If, in fact, Paul chose to be an apostle for him, if he chose the office for himself, then his claims to apostleship would ring hollow. And, in fact, would smack of pride and even arrogance. That here's a man saying that he is something. But Paul, in fact, is arguing, and Paul claims that he is commissioned by the will of God. It is God that has chosen him. It is God's will that he be an apostle. And for that reason, Paul doesn't back down when it comes to the issue of his being an apostle. Paul will not play the game of false humility or modesty. Oh, oh, don't call me an apostle. He did not choose this. God gave it to him. And therefore, he must, he does stand by the fact that he is an apostle. And the reason that he is an apostle is because of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. His commission is to communicate the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles. So as the letter opens, the one who is writing, who is speaking, is Paul. To whom is he writing? Well, again, in the ancient world, the formula was, who is writing and to whom are they writing? But there's actually more to who Paul is in these first 12 verses than what we find in the first verse. And I think they give us insight into into what he is writing. If you look at verse number 11, he says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. His position was not simply one of authority, apostle, capital A, apostle. He is, in fact, one who is a teacher. He is proclaiming the gospel. He is preaching. But who is this Paul? What can we learn about him at the beginning of this letter? Well, the first thing I would point out is that he has a deep and abiding affection for Timothy. If you look at verse 2, to Timothy, my dear son. I would remind you that Paul met Timothy, perhaps on his first missionary journey, we're not told. He's not mentioned until the second missionary journey as Paul travels through Galatia. We're told that Timothy's from Lystra in the province of Galatia. And upon the recommendation of the local believers in the church there, Paul decides to take Timothy along with him in his missionary travels. Timothy's mother is Jewish, Eunice. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where her name is mentioned. But his father was not Jewish. His father was Greek, and so he'd not been circumcised. And so Paul takes care of this. And then Timothy travels with him, and what we have is a bond almost that of a father with his son. Timothy he calls his dear son. And because he calls him his dear son, when we look at the rest of verse number two, these are more than just words. When we read about grace and mercy and peace, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what Paul says to everyone. But this is someone that he is very close to. Someone he has a deep and abiding affection for. And so if you look at verse number three, suddenly the tone becomes very personal. 
I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives you in you also. The NIV uses three different words in these three verses. Remember, recalling, and to be reminded. These, I think, convey the depth of Paul's affection for Timothy. He remembers Timothy constantly in his prayers. And Paul recalled their parting. I think this is what the reference is to his tears. It was marked by tears that when they left, uh, it was a very emotional parting. And, and Paul is reminded of that. Or he recalls that. And then he is reminded of Timothy's faith. And he's reminded of Timothy's grandmother and his mother. Now, if we're not careful, we would say, well, this is, this is nice and almost sort of sentimental, schmaltzy type of stuff. But there's something going on here that I think is very important. In this letter, Paul is going to give four charges, at least four charges to Timothy. He is going to tell him, this is what you must do. We need to understand those and to see those in the context of Paul's affection for Timothy. There is a personal relationship here. It's not a matter of one man bossing around another or of an older man telling a younger man what to do. Let me remind you of something we may forget too easily. It is the basis of God giving us commandments. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God, his commandments have force because he has a personal relationship with Israel. They are his people. He delivered them himself. So it isn't some, some deity who decides to say, okay, I'll tell everybody what to do. One might even argue that the fact that God is the creator, which is incredibly important, even when it comes to Israel, it isn't that that is the basis. It is the relationship that God delivered them out of bondage. God's commandments have force because he has a relationship with his people. And so it is with Paul and Timothy. The second thing we learn about Paul is that he is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse number 12. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. The matter of suffering is one of the four major points in this letter. We will come to it in a week or two. But have you ever wondered, why did Paul suffer so much? Um, for those who have their suspicions about Paul, they imagine or would like to that he brought it on himself, um, that he was just a disagreeable type of person. I do not agree. Look back at verses 8 and 9. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is why Paul suffered. It was for the sake of the gospel, which says it is God who saves sinners. It is not sinners who save themselves. It is not because of anything that we have done. 
that somehow we gain salvation. Well, if we'd be honest, nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear that we had no part, that that this was something that was done by someone else for us. You know, for all the talk of grace, the older I get, and maybe it's just that I'm noticing it or things have changed in the culture, I hear more and more people speak of earning grace. And that's simply not possible. It is not because of anything that we have done. And when Paul goes around and tells people, listen, God is gracious. He will forgive your sins. It is not because of anything that you have done that he will give you salvation. People don't want to hear this. The third thing we learn about Paul is he knew the source of what he had. Verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. The NIV has timidity but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. In Paul, we do not hear any self-sufficiency. God is the source of all things. It is by the will of God that he is, in fact, an apostle. God is the source of everything in Paul's life. At the beginning of our worship today, in most Sundays, we sing at the beginning in response. We respond to Ben's singing, We respond, I will not fear. But what are we responding to? What did Ben sing that we would answer, I will not fear? Because the Lord is my salvation, I will not fear. Because my confidence is in Him, I will not fear. Because you, that is the Lord, are with me, I will not fear. When we sing, I will not fear, we are not expressing, I trust, some sense of self-sufficiency, that we are not scared. As my brother used to say to his young son, you need to be brave of it. We are not being brave of it. It is because of who God is. He is the source of all things that we can sing by his grace that we will not fear. We are to affirm God's provision that all that we have comes from him. And Paul mentions here a spirit, not of fear, but of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. So much more I could say about this, but I want to move on. To whom is this letter addressed? Well, it is Timothy, someone who is dear to Paul. But we learn more here. We learn of Timothy's story. For the first time, we are told about his grandmother and his mother. It's interesting that Paul talks about Timothy's grandmother and mother, but he also hints at or points to his own heritage. Uh, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. Um, Timothy's father was Greek, but his mother and his grandmother were Jewish. We will see this as we go through the letter, that in fact they trained Timothy, they raised him in a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. It is possible that they became Christians before Timothy did, at least the way that the verse is written. Um, But even before they became Christians, they worshipped God. In chapter 3, verse 15, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. This is because of his godly grandmother and godly mother. All of this brings up issues for me, and I, I trust you will bear with me. 
um, as I discuss them. The first is a place of remembering. I am a historian by training, but perhaps even more so by temperament. I like remembering. I like studying the past. And that's why I struggle with a passage in Philippians 3. And if you want to turn there, you can, because I'll be looking at it for a bit. What Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. It seems as though Paul is telling us that we should not think about the past. We should not remember the past. We should, in fact, forget what is behind us and move on. Well, if you read Philippians, particularly chapter 3, we have a picture of a man who is single-minded. He is, in fact, pursuing Christ. He is straining toward what is ahead. He is pressing toward the goal to win the prize. For Paul, it is an ongoing struggle. He continues in the struggle. He says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He continues to struggle, as will all of us, until the day that we die. So, as Paul is struggling, what does he do? Well, he tells us, first of all, he forgets what is behind. And based on the context in Philippians 3, it seems that he's thinking of very specific things. The gifts that he was given, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, he had no say in that whatsoever. He is of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. These were gifts. This He had nothing to do with this. But then, there were things that he also did. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. These are the things that Paul says he has forgotten. Well, obviously he hasn't forgotten them because he's writing them down in this letter. I think what Paul has in mind is as a runner is looking at the finish line, He does so in a way that ignores the starting line. Where he started, or she started, and where they end up are two different things. And the focus is on the end of the race more than the beginning. Because to look back will distract him from getting to where he needs to go. I think remembering is a very important thing. God's people in the Old Testament were told time and time again, To remember, they are to rehearse, they are to retell what God has done. Take, for example, the Feast of Passover, a reenacting, a remembering of what God has done. We are to remember. Why else do we have the Old Testament? Why else do we have the New Testament? Why do we worship on Sunday? Remember the resurrection of Jesus. Why do we have the Lord's Supper in which we remember? Because we are to remember. But in our remembering, we must be careful that our focus does not shift to a dwelling on the past rather than a looking ahead to the finish line, if you wish. When it comes to the past and remembering the past, we are to respond in one of two ways, in my opinion. The first is we are to give thanks for what God has done in our life. I think we don't do this nearly enough. That when we consider when we think back to what God has done, when you get together with your family and you tell stories about when you were younger or when the others were younger, these are wonderful and oftentimes great times of great laughter 
There should also be times of great thanksgiving. But the second way that we are to respond is we are to refuse to dwell on the dark moments in the past. Whether our personal failures, a time of loss and grief, or what others have done to us. You say, fine, Damon, if I'm not to dwell on the past, then what I'm, what am I to do? It's a good question. Because what we find in the New Testament is that we're never told, stop doing this, period. That's the end of, no, we're always told, stop doing this, and instead you should do something else. You should do something in its place. So Paul says, straining toward what is ahead. We are looking to the future. We are not dwelling on the past, particularly those moments that bring us great pain, that bring us sorrow or grief. Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. It's interesting that what we find here is in fact a combination of the past and the future. That God in the past has called us that we would press in the present but also toward the future toward the goal which is in Christ Jesus. So, when I was looking at Second Timothy 1, that was the first issue that came to mind. Why does Paul tell us to forget what is in the past, what is behind, and yet here he reminds Timothy of his own past. Another issue comes up in my thinking, and that is the question of advantage or disadvantage. Both Paul and Timothy seem to have had advantages. They were raised in religious traditions and religious households. And let's face it, in our culture today, Advantage is often translated as unfair. If somebody has an advantage, then that's unfair to someone who doesn't have it. Or if someone has a disadvantage, that that's some form of injustice. And that's why this person is disadvantaged. And so, uh, in our culture, oftentimes we find our government seeking to mitigate the advantages or disadvantages some might have. I am convinced that we are to give thanks for where God has put us. And we need to think about this, that what we might consider a disadvantage might in fact turn out to our benefit. And what others might see as an advantage, such as I wish I'd been born into that family, or into that culture, or in that century, might in fact be a disadvantage. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I I would encourage you to recognize God's grace in your life, where he put you in your circumstances. I'm reminded, one of my favorite passages from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freeman. Similarly, he who is a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. What we might see as advantage can, in fact, be disadvantage and vice versa. Uh, I would commend to you uh, a recent book by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, David and Goliath, in which this is the basic point of the book, that those who are seen as disadvantaged, in fact, have used that not simply as motivation. I think that's where our mind would go. But they, in fact, have had to work harder in order to get to where they are. Um, And so what was perceived as a disadvantage ended up being to their advantage. And vice versa. Those who think, well, if I go to an Ivy League school, then I'll be set for life. In fact, that may end up becoming a great disadvantage. 
The third thing that comes up to me is the place of narrative. In essence, Paul is telling Paul of, uh, telling part of Timothy's story. Or better, he's reminding Timothy of his story. I mentioned this book in, when we were going through first, uh, Timothy. It's a recent book called Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now by Douglas Rushkoff. And he points out five ways in which present shock is manifesting itself. And when I used it in the sermon in First Timothy, I looked at the fifth one, which he calls apocalypto, a belief in the imminent shift of humanity into an unrecognizable different form. But that was the last one. It was actually the first one that I found the most intriguing. He calls it narrative collapse, that we live in a, t- in a time in which people no longer want stories. They want bits, sound bites. They don't want a narrative. He even quotes one author, um, which I assume he says, well, that's the way it used to be, but it no longer is. This author says, the story is one of the basic tools invented by the human mind for the purpose of gaining understanding. There have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. And yet, Rushkoff, as I say, he sees narrative as passé, that we are at a point right now where we don't need stories. Um, he gives an extended argument. I won't go into detail, but I would tell you that I disagree with him for at least two reasons. First of all, it is God who, if we want to use the word invented, it is God who chose to use stories to convey truth. I think some people might find that a great disappointment that they wish that God had been much more explicit and given direct revelation in which we are told, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Actually, people don't want that because we have the Ten Commandments and and they don't like that. But the notion that somehow uh, stories, aren't stories for kids? But read the Gospels. What does Jesus do? He tells parables. Read the Old Testament. It is a story of God's people. The second thing, the second reason why I disagree with Rushkoff, but again, I think it is his perspective. He sees us living in sort of an eternal existential present, is that stories connect the past and the future while we are here in the present. There is this arc between that which happened in the past and where we are right now and where, by God's grace, we will end up. So this is how Paul writes with Timothy. He reminds him of his past. And then he will give him these charges for what he is to do in his present and then tells him this is where it's going. This is the future. So here as we start Second Timothy, it is important for us to see who's writing and to whom he is writing. If we are to understand the instructions, the charges, we need to understand the relationship. We need to understand... That is Paul writing to Timothy. I want to be careful. If an anonymous writer had written 2 Timothy, but he had written it to someone equally anonymous, the truths of what are contained in this book would still be true. But it is because there is a relationship between Paul and Timothy that these words have force. They have context. And Timothy knows what he is supposed to do. I believe that these charges apply to us. 
the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy are not for Timothy alone, but they are for us. But I think we might try to duck that by making excuses. We might say, well, I don't have the advantages that Timothy did. After all, he got to hang out with Paul, the apostle. He was there in the first century. He may have met other apostles. Timothy had a greater advantage than we do. And because we see ourselves at a disadvantage, we choose, or we may choose to say, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't apply to me. I've spoken to a number of you in, over the past two or three months of this. I don't know if it's because of my age or my temperament or both. Um, but I find myself looking over my life and thinking there are a lot of things I should have done differently. And things that I wish had not happened in my life that people had done to me. And sorrows, losses that I wish I had not experienced. And in talking to different ones of you, I've described it as Damon 2.0. That in my mind, let's, let's redo this life. Let's, let's, let's do it differently. The reality is, if you change one moment of any incident, we are not here today. We are here today by the grace of God. So things that I wish perhaps did not happen that I did I should not have done God is in control and God has a purpose for my life and for your life and so rather than dwelling on the dark moments of the past either of mistakes sins sorrows or perhaps things that we have experienced that people have done to us, rather than dwelling on that, we should give thanks that God has given us what we have. I've heard a number of people who wished that they had been born at a different time or certainly into different families, or perhaps even a different culture. We are exactly where God has put us. And we are to give thanks for that, knowing that he is all wise and all loving. And within the context of that, hear these instructions and put them into practice. Otherwise, if we excuse ourselves and say, listen, what Paul wrote to Timothy, that was good for Timothy, but I did not have his advantages. In fact, let me tell you my life story. Let me tell you of all the things that I have suffered, all the things that I have done wrong, all the ways in which I have messed up. Let me just give you a list of blackness, of of darkness of the things that have happened in my life. If that's the route you take, then our time here will be wasted. Our going through Second Timothy will be a waste. It is because of God's grace in our lives that we have a relationship with God that he can now, through the Apostle Paul, say, this is what you're supposed to do. And by God's grace, 
by His Spirit, we can do that. But if we make excuses, and if we say, in fact, you don't know what I've gone through, you don't know what I've experienced, the pain, the sorrow, the mistakes I've made. And by the way, I would be the first to say, I may not. I may not. Okay? But the reality is, God is in control. He is in control of your life and the circumstances. And as Paul told, and I was amazed at some point reading that when Paul says, if you were, if you're a slave, don't let it trouble you. It's like, well, that's, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> you're not a slave. And yet he says, that's where God puts you. And if you're a freeman, don't think, oh, that's great. I, I'm not like this guy who's a slave. Because you are, in fact, Christ's slave. We must hear the words of God and the commands of God in the context of the relationship that he has with us. He has called us to be his people. And like Israel, we have gone through a wilderness, perhaps. We've gone through great difficulties, but God has been with us every step of the way. That's important because when we get to chapter 2, we'll look at suffering. Nobody wants suffering, but that, in fact, may be part of our story. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. By God's grace, may they be true of us as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of memory. We thank you for our minds, for imagination. But sometimes in our imagination, we, we imagine a different life in which we did not sin as we have, where others did not sin against us as they have where we've not made as many mistakes, or not as big a mistakes as we've made, where we have not suffered loss. That's not the life you've given us. Even in our sinning, in our failure, in our loss and sorrow, in our mistakes, you are there with us every step of the way because you love us. And what, in fact, we might see as a great disadvantage by your grace may, in fact, become an advantage. We are not to covet what other people have. We're not to wish for another life. We are to trust that you know what is best. And in that context, obey you. Because there is a relationship. You are our Father. You have given us life. You sustain our lives. By your grace, help us to understand this as we begin our study of Second Timothy so that we will have receptive hearts, open hearts to receive your commands as to what we are supposed to do living when and where we do. We thank you that for the past few months Greg and Lillian have been with us. We ask that you, with your grace, you would send them their way back home. Keep them safely. We pray for Lillian's father as well.
I thank you that they could be a part of our congregation for this time. And now as we leave, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.